Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast. And we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. So in uh, researching this episode, I was looking for other musical events that happened spring of 1974, doing our usual setting the context of of rock music uh, for this show. Uh, And I stumbled upon this music festival that happened a couple weeks after this Grateful Dead show uh, in April called California Jam. Are you familiar with the California Jam, Steve? You know, I wasn't that familiar with it before you started sending me videos. I I I knew of it because... When you watch the Eagles documentary, History of Eagles, they show them playing at this festival. And there was this thing like where they, they had like a rainbow on stage that people played under. Like Jackson Brown played with the Eagles at that show instead of Don Felder. So it was a unique Eagles show for that reason. But no, that was it. I didn't know the full depths of just 70s rock access that was on display at this festival. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this thing is is unbelievable. It was a total diversion wormhole to fall into while I was supposedly researching the Grateful Dead. Uh, It was huge, supposedly 400,000 people. So it's almost like Watkins Glen size. It it took place just outside of Los Angeles. It had like a pretty solid, but also kind of crazy lineup. I'll just uh, walk through the performers here. We had Rare Earth. That was the, who I only know as like the, the Motown rock band. Earth, Wind, and Fire, the Eagles, as you mentioned. Seals and Crofts somehow get in there doing Summer Breeze, the afternoon of California Jam. Diamond Girl, you know, they had yeah. some hits in the early 70s. They're followed up. It gets heavier from there. Black Oak, Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, then Black Sabbath. So two, two bands after Summer Breeze, you got War Pigs. Then Deep Purple, who we're going to talk about some more in a minute, topped off by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And then, you know, it has to be mentioned, the entire event was MC 
DJ'd by Don Imus, of all people. <laughs> when he was a rock DJ in New York, yeah. and before he was a talk radio host. And the relevance for the show we're going to be talking about today, Dick's Picks 24, is that this festival, I think, took place like three weeks afterward. Like, wasn't this like April, like mid-April or so? This is April 6th, so only two weeks. Also later, two weeks. Yeah. So this is like the Coachella of 1974, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. It's wild. Also, you know, this Dick's Picks we're going to be talking about, it's the debut of the Wall of Sound, which is a big thing in Dead History. But Deep Purple also had their own, like, ridiculously huge PA, right? That they brought right. to this festival? Yeah, supposedly, it has a Wikipedia entry that very clearly seems to be written by uh, one of the organizers of the event, <laughs> because it describes it as one of the most well-executed and financially successful uh, festivals in rock history, sort of. Uh, but it also claims that it set the record for largest sound system ever assembled at, at a live concert. And I guess it's because they combined the PAs of all the bands that were on the bill and created this thing that was 54,000 watts and two 50-foot-high speaker towers and et cetera, et cetera. It says Circus Magazine wrote that it transmitted Black Oak Arkansas singer Jim Dandy's hot and nasty growl to swarms of people <laughs> spread clear across the speedway. Vivid prose. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a uh, it was a PA for the entire festival because I thought it was for Deep Purple because like weren't they like the loudest band in the world at that time? I guess so, yeah. They were considered yeah, that. Guinness Book Records uh, certified loudest band. I think the Who eventually beat them like i remember yeah. when i had the guinness book of world records as a kid and i would read it there was a concert i think that the who played at the silver dome mm-hmm. in detroit in 1976 that was supposedly the loudest concert of all time so i don't know i don't know where that stands now but it is funny to imagine if somehow the dead had ended up on this bill at california jam and they had brought the wall of sound and it was combined with this other sound system <laughs> it would have like destroyed the world. I mean, this would have been yeah, a, yeah. Like, the biggest PA known to man. It would have been like the Large Hadron Collider. Like it would have <laughs> ripped a hole in the space-time universe. Yeah, I, I would have liked if they had brought the Well of Sound and set it up on the other side of the speedway, <laughs> and then made the Grateful Dead play at the same time as Deep Purple. Oh man, uh, sort of like like the old like Jamaican DJ street battles where they would bring their each bring their own PA system and try and drown each other out. That would have been the ultimate uh, 1974 rock moment. Yeah, it's like the Jamaican street battle meets Godzilla versus King Kong meets <laughs> this is Spinal Tap. You know, like that's what that would, would have been. That would have been amazing. Right. Speaking of Spinal Tap, you can go on and watch. I guess you can watch all the Deep Purple set because it was filmed for ABC. But Steve found the most exciting part of the Deep Purple set, <laughs> which you can find on YouTube under the infamous Richie Blackmore incident at the 1974 California Jam. Which uh, Why don't you give us give us the play-by-play, Steve, I mean, on what it, happens. That here. might be my favorite <laughs> YouTube title of all time you know (laughs) you see that you know you're in for something good yeah i mean this video you just need to stop this podcast and go to youtube and watch this video quick it's like a 10 minute long clip and i don't know if they're playing a song or if it's just a jam (laughs) like i'm not i like deep purple i'm not up on this era of deep purple this was i think this might have been the first show they played with david coverdale and glenn hughes it was like among the first, I think. Ian Gillen is the singer during their Machine Head era, of, you know, Smoke right. on the Water and all that stuff. It, Ian Gillen also from Jesus Christ Superstar. He's Jesus. Yeah, Rob Mitchum favorite. But yeah, so in this video, they're jamming and Richie Blackmore, who looks a lot like Adam from The War on Drugs in this video. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> like if 
Adam were, were like way sleazier and like way more of like, you know, just into what? playing solos for 10 minutes. Wearing head to toe black silk. <laughs> this like satin. <laughs> like very, yeah, it's like a kimono sort of that he's wearing. <laughs> I don't know. That was a big thing for 70s rock guitarists because like Jimmy Page, I feel like, would wear. Like he, yeah. he had the dragon suit in right, like, 77. Right. Very similar. You know, it, it looks like it's got a lot of ventilation for yeah, exactly. you know, a hot stage. Yeah, exactly. You get a lot of breeziness. It, <laughs> it breathes well. So he's he's playing this solo, and he starts, like, whipping the guitar around like, like a windmill. And then he's, like, rubbing it against the edge of the stage. And then, like, at some point, I don't know if it's on purpose or if it's an accident, but he drops the guitar into the audience. So then he gets a second guitar, and he's soloing on that. And he's whipping it around and he's rubbing it on the stage. And then he starts attacking the camera. And I think that is, that's like one of the incidents in this thing. I mean, (laughs) the title's a little misleading because I think there's like a couple things that happen in this performance that you could describe as the Richie Blackmore incident. Because he attacks one of ABC's cameras and I think it was like $10,000 worth of damage that he did to this camera. He's just like smashing it with his guitar. And then at some point, he just chucks that into the audience. So that's his <laughs> second guitar. Then he gets a third guitar. This is the third guitar. This is like seven minutes. He's gone, he's already burned through three <laughs> guitars. And there's this part, like, because he's whipping the guitar around again. And apparently, like, because you and I, you sent me a, that, that interview clip we were talking about earlier where right. he, he says that, um, Richie Blackmore was mad because he wanted the band to go on at dusk. And he right. and he was willing to like make the audience wait for like two hours to do that. Because Emerson, Lake, and Palmer was on after them. Emerson, right. ELP was the last band of the night, but Deep Purple wanted to go on at dusk. And I guess the rest of the band caved at some point. And they went on earlier than Richie Blackmore wanted to go on. So he was pissed during this set. So... He's on his third guitar, he's whipping it around, and then there's this point in the video like where you see him kind of signal to a roadie. He kind of gives him a signal, and apparently like the roadie threw gasoline on <laughs> his Marshall stacks, although they were fake Marshall stacks. Doesn't he say that in right. the video? Yeah, he's like, oh, it was one of my dummy stacks. <laughs> so it, it just accepted that most of the uh, amplifiers on stage were fake at this point. Yeah, so they pour gasoline, and like... He signals the guy, and then I don't know. I guess I don't know exactly what happens, but like somehow, <laughs> like a you know, some flame is lit and it blows up. Right. <laughs> it almost like much more than expected. I think. Yeah, it's crazy. For about five seconds, you're like, "Oh, Richie Blackmore's. Good. We're I, we're gonna see Richie Blackmore die <laughs> on stage because he almost gets set on fire." And then I guess his, his guitar got set on fire, and he throws right. that. So then he gets like a fourth guitar, <laughs> apparently. He has like his fourth yeah. guitar, and he rubs that on the stage a little bit more, and like that's the guitar he ends up with. So he burns through four guitars. Then he guitars. tunes it up and starts playing. Right. <laughs> so he's just, he's, he burns through four guitars in about 10 and a half minutes. In this yeah. It's like the craziest thing. It's pretty amazing. I've ever seen. Like, it, it, yeah, I, I love it. I love the video. But and then they said afterwards they like ran straight to the helicopter and flew away <laughs> because the the fire marshal and the police were gonna <laughs> attack them. And ABC was mad about their camera, so yeah, uh, they were literally like fleeing the scene to I don't know uh, escape the bill. It sounds like later on they ended up 
paying everybody off. Yeah, it, 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 it's nuts, man. Because, again, they literally put gasoline on this thing. It wasn't like pyro. <laughs> right. You know, it was like, oh, and Richie Blackmore in that video was like, well, I didn't know it was going to blow up. I decided to be on fire. <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah. I thought it would look cool. It does look cool. It does. Uh, it, I'll hand it to him, and he's not phased at all. Like, he could be on fire, and he just, like, walks away. I know. Uh, so, hand it to Richie Blackmore. He, uh... Cool under pressure. And then ELP goes on late night, uh, having to to follow this up, which they do in part by another fantastically titled video you can find on YouTube, which is called Keith Emerson's Flying Piano. (laughs) And he like, again, a dummy piano. It's not a real piano, I learned. Uh, He he climbs into the seat of a piano, which lifts off the stage and then actually flips end over end multiple times while he's supposedly soloing. I guess he was miming because the piano, a piano full of it's, you know, strings and hammers and everything is too heavy for them to do it. So uh, they had to use a hollow piano, a stage piano to do this. So, man, 1974, you really had to bring it. You couldn't just get up on stage and play. You had to work in some special effects in yeah. the stage performance. Well, you know, for all the insanity that was going around the Grateful Dead, it is nice to look at the rest of the rock world in 1974 <laughs> and realize now right. everyone was just coked to the gills insanity was rampant in rock and roll and really i mean you compare that to the show we're going to be talking about today i mean this this show is like kind of mellow yeah kind of subtle and it seems especially mellow compared to what was going on at california (laughs) jam so i'm excited to get into it let's uh let's get our four guitars and get ready to chuck them in the audience (laughs) This is 36 from The Vault, presented by Osiris. I'm Steve. I'm Rob. And we're here to talk about Dick's Picks 24 from the Cow Palace in San Francisco, March 23rd, 1974. An historic show for the Grateful Dead. Why is that, Rob? Well, this is the first official show of the Wall of Sound. Uh, So the Wall of Sound is going to be our our main character throughout this entire episode. Lots to discuss around, you know, the Dead's humble PA system compared to what was going on at California Jam. But, you know, a surprisingly uh, well-known figure, character in Grateful Dead history, even though it was, I mean, it's a beautiful object aesthetically. I think thematically appropriate for the Grateful Dead where they were at at this time. So we'll be getting into that. Yeah, we're going to be talking a lot about the wall of sound. I, I, you know, we were talking about this this week. Is there another example of a PA system for a rock band being as famous as the wall of sound? I mean, I, no. I really can't think of like a PA that has a name. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I was trying to think, like, you know, you hear about, like, 
the Who's sound system or like Pink Floyd having quadraphonic sound uh, sort of in this era, Dark Side of the Moon shows and things like that. But nobody went so far as to name it or if they did name it, it didn't uh, get out into the fans and become this like well-known thing, you know, enough so that, you know, there's there's entire chapters about Grateful Dead biographies about the wall of sound. There's Thoughts on the Dead, Rest in Peace, Thoughts on the Dead had a long running bit about the wall of sound being like a presidential candidate <laughs> at one point <laughs> and being, you know, a, a, a humanized version of the wall of sound that would talk to him through his blog. Uh, another genius bit Oh man! Uh, on thoughts of the dead. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it's funny. We'll get into it. It's funny that this show was even released or considered for released. And I think it's purely because of this historic reason and not maybe purely because of the musical reasons, but you know, it, there's some fascinating things going on that, that we'll get to. Yeah. It's an interesting show because of the wall of sound and also because it's a hometown show and we've mm. seen this on other dicks picks that when the dead are playing in san francisco things tend to be a little looser maybe less professional even for the dead um <laughs> what was that dicks picks where they played a bunch of like working man's dead songs in san francisco was you know what i'm talking about i, I feel like there was a show that we talked about from like 69 that was in san francisco am i totally making this up do you know what I'm talking about? I like, think, uh, yeah. So that I'm, I'm pretty sure it's 16 yes, you're talking about, which yes. was late 1969 at the Fillmore, Fillmore Auditorium. Yes, Fillmore exactly. Uh, yeah. And so they were like trying some new material out right. uh, on, the, on the hometown crowd, right? And this, this show reminded me of that one a little bit in terms of the looseness. And it's a little ragged in places, I think in a, a cool way, but... I don't know. We'll, t- we'll get into it as we get into the show. Lots to discuss in this episode. But before we get to that, we have our mailbag segment. And uh, thank you again to everyone who, who have, who's written in. Uh, we get a lot of great letters. Unfortunately, we can't read them all. Some of them are way too long. <laughs> we did have a letter from one listener who wrote like a book about keep your day job. Uh, and I wrote him back. I'm like, dude, this is way too long. We can't read this whole thing. But we do have some keep your day job content in our mailbag. Just a little teaser there. We also have a lot of playing in the band content here. I feel like you should read the first letter because this this letter's almost like in direct response to something you said in our Dick's Picks 23 episode. I summoned this one from our audience, yes. which is great. So this is a return letter writer, which is also good. It says... Hey, 36 from the Vaulters. It's Grady the Drummer from Denton, Texas. You might remember Grady wrote in about Ro Jimmy to explain why I was an idiot for not liking the dream, the drums in Ro Jimmy and how it was actually this like fantastically mathematical thing that Bill Kreutzmann was doing, uh, which which won me over. I, I have a new appreciation for Ro Jimmy now. Grady is like our time signature correspondent. I know. I love it. I think we're going to deputize him that as that right now. So he says, Rob, thanks for thinking of me after hearing Bobby's weird count off before playing in the band from DP23. I do indeed have an answer for you. So if you recall, Bob counts off playing in the band with three, five, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, and we talked a little bit about why that might be. So here's Grady's response. Derived from the main ten, the time signature of playing in the band is 10-4, meaning ten quarter notes or beats to a measure. He attached an audio sample of me counting along to the DP23 version for demonstration. Maybe we can weave that in. Yeah, right? we'll dig that out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four. Five, uh, every-
Every section of playing in the band uses the same 10 count, except for the jam, which is what makes it space out so quickly. When they begin jamming, they're each kind of playing in their own time signature, but still keeping the same pulse. If this song were by Can, Pink Floyd, or Miles Davis, the point of the jam would absolutely be to keep the time signature intact. But this is not the case with our Heroes and the Dead. I think this qualifies playing in the band as proto-math rock. Ah. All right, awesome. The time signature does not explain the strange count-off, though. <laughs> as a tweeter mentioned, it would be just as easy or easier to count one, two, one, two, three, four, like the boss, instead of three, five, seven, eight, nine, ten, like a crazy person. <laughs> I feel like Bob is showing off a little bit by counting audibly. You don't often hear verbal counts by the dead. Uh, I hope this helps, and I'll talk more soon. Grady. Thanks, oh, Grady. Yeah, that was great. Grady, our time signature correspondent for 36 from the Vault. <laughs> Thank you for chiming in. That was very informative. He described that very well. I feel like I learned something from this show. Maybe the first time I've learned something from this show. (laughs) Uh, It's always a shock to have educational content on 36 from the Vault. Should I read the second one, or do you want to read this one? This is another point of the band. You take the second one, yeah. Okay, so... It says, Dear Steve and Rob, love the podcast. Always great to take a deep dive into dead shows. You may be happy to know that I heard your podcast when a guy called into Tales from the Golden Road to recommend it to David Gans, Gary Lambert, and their listeners. Oh, wow. man, what, what did Gans and Lambert think when someone brought up our show? It's like, who's, who's bringing this clown car into our uh, show here, man? Well, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad that uh, someone shouted this out. That's, that's really cool. We never achieved our dream of becoming guests on Shakedown Stream before it ended uh, during the pandemic. So at least Gary Lambert heard about us indirectly. Well, yeah, I'm sure they'll be doing some like pregame Dead & Co., shows you know so maybe this is our foot in the door this is our ticket to the golden road so to speak we'll see what happens as for my question in an honor of a fine playing the band on dicks picks 23 how do you think the donna re-entry vocal after the jam came about did she just do it and they thought okay <laughs> or was it suggested to her i know you guys are donna fans and i am too but this always seemed like a pretty aggressive vocal choice thanks rich Thanks for writing in, Rich. Okay, so the answer to this is I don't know why or how that <laughs> happened. Um, yeah. I did do a little bit of research, and I read uh, David Brown of Rolling Stone. He did an interview with Donna in 2014. And I was surprised to learn, and I'd be curious to see if there's contradicting reporting on this, that Donna was asked first to join the band, and she insisted that they uh, also hire Keith. Have you heard that from other places yeah i mean i I, i've heard it as donna was the one that got keith into the band like she was kind of a lot more aggressive about it than keith was you know similar to his playing style was sort of a passive type that wasn't you know courageous enough to walk up to the dead and say hey i should be your new keyboardist so we got his wife to do it well and (laughs) And, when the dead still had a keyboardist technically too at that time and 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 so pigpen was still in the band obviously not in peak condition so yeah I'd, I'd be curious to know how that evolved i mean my my guess is that like many things with the dead that it happened organically yeah you know she's on stage that's a moment in the song where they come back to the song proper it's a rousing part of the song so it makes sense that someone starts screaming their head off at that, <laughs> at that point of the song i've come around on that donna part where you know you hear it at first and you feel like oh that's kind of over the top but I actually really like it. I find that like when I hear playing in the band in eras outside of the Donna era, 
that I, I missed that. Yeah, it's like a punctuation mark. Right. Yeah. You feel like, oh, it's, it should be there, and it's not. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why it's there, I've always assumed it's because the, the Dead's peers in San Francisco sort of around this time are maybe a little earlier than this time are like the Jefferson airplane and big brother and the holding company where you had, I think similar sort of yells, feminine yells <laughs> in music. Like it's a very like Grace slick sort of sounding vocalization, I guess to me. Like a um, Janis Joplin. Exactly. Yeah. So I agree that it's an aggressive vocal choice, but it's also in keeping with sort of how female vocalists were used in San Francisco rock bands of the time. So it's not a, a, a total anomaly. Yeah, I like it too. I mean, the, the reason it got a bad rap, I think, is partly down to our main character today, which is that Donna couldn't really hear herself very well with the wall of sound. I, th- I always think Donna sounds way better, you know, in sort of 76, 77, 78, because they actually had stage monitors. And she, you know, had this very illustrious career you know even before she joined the dead where she was a professional singer and a studio musician and i think was used to a professional level of equipment that the dead may have been lacking (laughs) at times in the early 70s so the wall of sound famously did not have monitors like the music that was coming out from the back was you know that the audience could hear was the same that the the band could hear and they had these weird microphones uh that had two microphones taped together so that you wouldn't get feedback somehow from so you would sing in one and the other one would be slightly delayed and it would prevent feedback in some way that i only barely understand uh (laughs) but donna talks about how she couldn't really hear herself uh so it's unfortunate that all of these you know play and yells were captured at times when donna was not you know totally in her element as a singer so it got a bad rap for that but i do like i'm 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 with you on it feeling like a sort of triumphant return to the song after you know some some deep improv before it usually yeah i mean donna's up there for maybe 10 15 20 minutes before she gets to (laughs) sing again she's probably got a lot of pent-up energy at that point it's like i'm ready to go here man i've been waiting you know so she was ready to explode and she does explode and really, again, I think she's got like a little uh, bench or something to sit on, right? <laughs> I don't think she was standing I there the whole so. time. <laughs> I hope so. But even like you know, sitting on a bench for twenty minutes, you know, you're probably like, okay, I'm I'm ready. I wonder like if she'd be on the bench and she'd get off the bench, anticipating that they were about to be done, and then she'd right. be like, oh wait, they're not done. So then nope, she's just sit nope, back nope, on the bench. They're not coming back. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I swear, there's a few versions where they go back into the song before she's ready, like she's backstage or something, and it, like you miss the Donna yell because they had like gone back into it before she could make it back in stage on time. So I can't remember any specific versions where I heard that, but like, I, I swear that has happened before. Like Donna's going back, she, she's making a sandwich. She's maybe exactly. watching. She's watching, you know, all in the family backstage. Maybe right. feeding uh, the baby. Feeding the baby. Maybe uh, <laughs> you know, returning some phone calls. You know, just getting her her errands done for the day, and then all of a sudden she hears dun, 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 like, oh, God, and she's got to like run back. I'm on. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So let's get to our third letter here. Do you want to read this one, or should I read this one? Yeah, so this is not the uh, novel-length day job defense that was promised. We'll we'll figure out a way to get to that eventually. But this is a number, not day job defender, but rather somebody trying to put day job in its proper place in the dead canon. So this is Jake from Leavenworth, Washington, who says, Come on, people. It's ridiculous to be on this day job is the worst dead song bandwagon. Are people so serious about their deadheadism that they can't handle the band poking fun at them? 
I'd be surprised if it was the music. It's a very U.S. blues esque bouncy tune. Dare I say chukily? That was my own. Yeah, that's, my own insight. I guess you could say that. <laughs> and I don't hear much hate for that song. Reasoning aside, go listen to these songs and tell me J Job is worse. So Jake's provided a, uh, an even dozen Grateful Dead songs that are worse than J Job, and we got Money Money at the top of the list, which okay. I have to agree with Jake. You know, this this show is also right before from the Mars Hotel, uh, so I went back to listen to that, and I always forget what a clunker Money Money is on that record, and it's like kind of offensive too in a way that Keep Your Day Job isn't. So <laughs> there's it's got that going for it. Uh, number two, we got a lot of uh, songs here I noticed from dead keyboardists uh, that they contributed. We have Picasso Moon, We Can Run, Samba in the Rain. <laughs> Samba in the Rain. Okay. He's making a strong case here. Already yeah, he's yes. making a strong case. Okay, but uh, keep going with this list. Samba in the Rain might be mine, I gotta say. Easy Answers. I don't really mind Easy Answers. I'm surprised Easy Answers is on here. And Karina. Karina, I'm okay on Karina. I mean, 90s Dead songs, they're not the greatest, but those are a couple decent ones i would say tons of steel wave to the wind if the shoe fits i don't even know if i know what if the shoe fits is Do you know what if the shoe fits is? no he, he might just be making up song titles at this point <laughs> to, to test us uh, i have to look up if the shoe fits i have found a blind spot in my dead scholarship uh, eternity another 90s one uh, let me sing your blues away and when push comes to shove so a lot of brents a lot of brenty yeah stuff i don't there. mind when push comes to shove i don't know maybe yeah. I, have, I have a soft spot because that's on uh in the dark isn't it when push yeah, comes to shove so. so is tons of steel i believe i don't mind the, i wouldn't put those songs on this list but he has more of the letter here i think yeah, he, so he concludes by saying, that's a dozen songs right there. If you're telling me money, money is better than day job, as Mitch would say, you're a fucking imbecile. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a good letter. That was a good letter. Yeah. I, have to, I have to tip my cap there because that's the best case I've heard for defending Keep Your Day Job, even if it is based on saying other songs are worse. Like you're, he's mm-hmm. not really defending Keep Your Day Job. He's saying that these other songs are worse, but he's making a strong case, I think, you know, in that regard. You know, he's not making right. it's not a positive case, really, but he's it's a very strong negative case. He's basically like a defense attorney creating reasonable <laughs> like he's not saying my client is innocent. Right. He's creating reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury that his client is guilty. And I have to say keep your day job is sucky. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, he's a good lawyer, because I I have reasonable doubt in my mind now. So, well done. <laughs> good shout out to a, a couple good, deep 36 from the Vault references right. at the end of that, too. Yeah. So, I appreciate that. I would I would amend, I guess, uh, you know, based on this evidence, to keep your day job being the worst dead song we've heard in Dick's Picks. Right. Because all 12 of these songs conspicuously are absent from Dick's Picks so far, and I'm, I'm not even sure we're going to get any of these. We've talked about how they managed to pick Brent shows that do not have any Brent songs. I haven't run all of these through the database, but I'm pretty sure I don't think we're, we're hearing any of these songs in the future. You know, Samba and the Rain, I'm inclined to defend just because of the title. <laughs> I love the title. Uh, and yeah, it's not a good song, but... It's and it, that also like money, money. It's kind of gross too. <laughs> uh, it's just like making me think about the Grateful Dead having sexy moments, and I mean, it's, that's not where my brain wants. I to guess go. I feel like keep your day job. Maybe it, it's like an, it's intentionally trying to be funny, whereas Samba in the Rain yeah. is like unintentionally funny. And maybe yeah. I lean more towards the unintentionally funny song <laughs> than the one where, like, where they're trying to be funny and it doesn't quite land. 
I right. don't know. But anyway, that, have we locked ourselves into reading this other keep your day job letter in a future episode? This is like a lot of keep your day job content that we're. It might just have to be to. a uh, a special <laughs> standalone episode. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. Thirty six keep your day jobs from the vault. It's going to yeah. be our next uh, series. Um, so let's get into the context of Dick's Picks twenty four. This uh, record was released February 2002. This is the last show of the Lightning Bolt era. Mm-hmm. It's momentous. We're moving out of the Lightning Bolt cover art uh, to a, a special one-off cover art next time. And uh, we started, w- was the first Lightning Bolt show, was that 19? Or did we start Lightning Bolt before that? I can't, I think, yeah, 19 is the first Lightning Bolt. Right, so we started off this season with the yeah. lightning bolts. And we're saying farewell here with a, a very pleasant orange lightning bolt over the skyline of San Francisco. So. Yeah, it's it, you got like a seagull flying in there, and you got like the Golden Gate Bridge. It looks like it's like a picture that was taken from the perspective of Alcatraz looking back on San Francisco over the bay. It kind of Or maybe ha- from, maybe you're across, you know, I guess the, with the bridge there, you're probably over in Marin County. Which I know how to say properly now, looking back at San Francisco. It kind of gives me like a 70s soft rock vibe looking at this it cover. It does, yeah. It's very, you know, Doobie Brothers, Christopher Cross looking cover, which is kind of appropriate for this show because, again... Yeah, it kind of fits. This is a pretty mellow dead show. It's very airy sounding, very sparse, I think, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. This was like one of the first Dick's Picks I ever owned. Dick's Picks 1 was the first, and then this one, I think, was like... Among the first five. And was that just uh, happenstance? Or yeah. Or did you just pick yeah. this one out for some reason? It was whatever was at the used CD store in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is where yeah. I was when I started collecting Dick's Picks. This one was just up for grabs, so I was glad to, to grab it. You know, I wanted to bring this up to you because we've had this discussion in other episodes about releasing a whole show versus doing more of a curated approach. And this show, th- this is not the whole show. Yeah, there's significant cuts made to this show, basically to make it two discs, because mm-hmm. it would have been three discs if they put out the whole show. I have to say, like for this show specifically, I'm on board with every cut they made, and right. like, and maybe that's informed by us listening to every Dick's pick so far. And <laughs> like, like, what were the songs that they cut again? Like, we we wrote yeah. all these down. Well, so this is almost like they looked into the future from February 2002 at Rob and Steve doing 36 <laughs> from the Vault. <laughs> And made a bunch of cuts uh, suited to our tastes. So they cut probably about an hour of music from this show. So they easily could have just put it out as three discs, but they cut several songs. So they cut from the first set, Mexicali Blues. Uh, Our our buddy Tennessee Jed did not make the cut. Hit the road, Uh, Jed. Yeah. Get out. Sorry, Jed. Not this time. You're you're limited to only uh, 32 of the 36 (laughs) picks. Exactly. They cut El Paso. They cut uh, It Must Have Been the Roses. Uh, from the second set, they cut Chip of Fools. There was a Ramble on Rose and a Me, me and My Uncle. And, uh, they cut Around and Around, so we get only a single berry from what was a double berry show. And and, and the worst berry. We're on record saying Around and Around is our right. least favorite uh, our berry least favorite. of the berry covers. So get out of here with that. <laughs> uh, and then they cut the entire encore, which it was a two-song encore with Casey Jones. And guess what? One more Saturday night. Yeah. Uh, once again, misses the cut. So yeah. the, the campaign against one more Saturday night continues. And again, we, we haven't had a one more Saturday night yet, right? There hasn't been one in Dick's Picks. No, there has not. And I wonder, is one coming, do we know? 
later on? Let's look it up. I, th- I think when we looked at it before, it was still several volumes away. Yeah. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there is one coming up ahead. At some it is point. not until volume twenty nine. Oh, okay. So, so that's going to be still got, that'll be next season, even man. Uh, and there's a bunch right at the end, like they're making up for lost time. <laughs> twenty nine, thirty, thirty one, thirty two, thirty three, thirty four. Not thirty five, but thirty six. So you get all but one. We're going to be Tennessee jetting one more Saturday night uh, in season four. We're going to be yeah. eating our words about missing that song. <laughs> it's just, there's, like you want, okay, like choke on it, choke on one more Saturday night. At the right. end, <laughs> Bob Bob clearly filed a complaint with the uh, head office and said, <laughs> "This is you got to be putting Saturday nights in there, man. I didn't play that every other show for for no good reason exactly. for it to be lost. I mean, history. the yeah. song is called One More Saturday Night. We need one. We need at least one here. I mean, we're not getting yeah. any Saturday nights, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, I I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because I have to say that I'm leaning more towards the curatorial approach where you don't put out a whole show or maybe you do like a stand like the best hits from a particular stand i realize that that point of view is i'm sure informed by the reality that we have now where you can go online and you can hear every odd node demand and like this show in particular like we went on and we listened to the unedited show so it makes me more inclined to think that if you put out an official release that oh maybe you don't need everything right because you can go and hear the odd Uh, how do you feel about that yeah, I'm with you there. I feel like it's like a nice compliment where you can listen to the highlights. I mean, it, this show is, uh, you know, the the beginning of 74. And on Dick's Big 7, we heard the, our, our first dip into 1974 was like a highlights compilation from the London shows, from three shows in September of 74, which I think worked great, uh, even though they cut out some stuff that we liked. But yeah, I kind of like, I, I've come full circle on this where, you know, early on I was waiting for us to get to full complete shows and now I'm back around to thinking like, yeah, let's just get like the two best discs worth of music out of this. I, I think this one, especially because it has such a laid back, mellow, uniform vibe, more so than a lot of dead shows, works really well as just, you know, two and a half hours of music instead of trying to cram all three and a half, four hours of music from the night on there. Uh, maybe if you put those songs back in, it doesn't have that same uniform mood though so maybe it's kind of created by the songs that they selected and the songs that they didn't put in i mean for this show especially which is kind of a wobbly show in a lot of ways uh it it, it works really well yeah i mean after listening to the unedited show i i feel like it has the same vibe as dick's picks 24 it's just feels a little flabbier in parts where right. you uh, feel like, ah, I don't know if I need to hear this song again. I mean, I'll say that there's some good performances in the songs that they cut out. I mean, I think you said this in our notes that like the Tennessee Jed <laughs> is actually kind of interesting. That they Yeah, cut I almost wish this one had made it because it's the most unusual Tennessee Jed I think we've heard that doesn't have a fake violin <laughs> MIDI setting on it. <laughs> it's, it's super spare. It sounds yeah. so much space in there and it's pretty slow. I mean, again, like, I feel like in 2002, I totally would have wanted to hear a whole show because we didn't have the same access that we have now. But looking back on it, it's like, yeah, it's kind of nice just to hear a compilation. Like, you mentioned Dick's Pick 7. Like, a cool thing about that show is that it is 
multiple shows that they pull from. So you can be like, oh, that sounds like a cool run. And then you can go on and check out all three shows in their entirety if you want. So it's almost like, it's like a heads up of like, this is like a pretty cool run that they did this year, but it's not giving you everything. It's kind of giving you the, the best stuff. So... And I think uh, maybe Dave has arrived at the best solution with the Dave Pick series, which tends to be like, here's one complete show, and then we're going to fill in whatever space we have with a show that was nearby that show. Right. We'll either do a bonus disc or we'll do a lot of filler from like the show the next night or a show from the same region. So it gives you both. It gives you, you know, one complete experience, but then also some context from around that that tour i gotta say too those bonus discs that are with the you know there's usually like one day's picks per year where there's a bonus disc where they're Mm. cherry picking from a show nearby those bonus discs are often like my favorite thing that came out like in the course of a year for day's picks like they're so killer where it's just like a perfect 80 minutes of music that you put in and you just can totally get taken away we should talk about spring 74 here and this is kind of an unusual show because like it wasn't really part of a tour. Yeah. This is a totally isolated one-off show. They opened the year with a three-night run at Winterland in February, February 22nd through 24th. And then there's this one show in March, and then there are no more shows until June, partly because they were recording from the Mars Hotel, uh, which they started recording pretty much right after this show. It's listed as March 30th through April 19th is when they recorded Mars Hotel. And then it came out in June. Fast turnaround in in those days between recording and release. Um, Yeah, it seems like, you know, when you listen to it, you're like, this kind of just sounds like a tech rehearsal or like a sound check for the wall of sound and we've thanks to the grateful seconds blog which had gathered some news articles around the time of this show they actually billed it as a sound check <laughs> like it was in the newspaper as either the sound check or the sound test so they you know went out there and said, hey, San Francisco hometown deadheads, we got this like bitchin' new sound system that we want to test out. Uh, come join us at the Cow Palace. Not a small venue either. Very large venue compared to what they would normally play in San Francisco. You know, we're going to work through the kinks and you can come see us play some tunes. And that really sets the tone for this show, I think, is that it just feels like a sound check. It's a little bit like that Watkins Glen sound check, which was a sound check that turned into a Grateful Dead show. This one just, it feels you know, as intimate and like rehearsally as you can get in a venue that is like 16,000 people. And I think generally speaking, I, I like that aspect of, of this show that it feels looser. And I think, again, you know, going back to the Dick's Pick 16 example, you can hear a certain sense of relaxation, I guess, in the way that they're approaching these shows. Like you feel like mm-hmm. you're hanging out with the dead and a bunch of their friends and like in someone's backyard or something, even though right. this is like a pretty sizable music venue. And I like the looseness of that and the raggedness. Is this like the most banter heavy show too from Dick's Pick so yeah. far? There's like a lot of like banter that is totally devoid of context. There's a couple moments in the show where you don't know what they're talking about. And there's really no clues to like you at home listening, you know, 50 years later almost. Right. To really understand what they're talking about. But I, I like that aspect of it. Yeah, just mysterious banter all over the place. <laughs> it's awesome. That does kind of like fit this 
this is like a show, but not really a show. It's kind of an open rehearsal and everybody's just going with it. There's a good, there's a couple good audience tapes on the archive too that you can listen to and you hear being in the crowd too, you get that sort of like most of the people here had seen the Grateful Dead a lot and were, were, were kind of chill about just having you know, a night to spend with their friends. And uh, here's some new music. Some of the songs played here are being played for the first time by the Grateful Dead. Some yeah. of the songs are some fairly, big ones. Some fairly new. Yeah, this show has the first Scarlet Gonias. It has the first Grateful Dead version of Cassidy, which was on Bob Ware's album Ace. They gave it a little trial run here and then shelved it again <laughs> afterwards. U.S. Blues is very new. Ship of Fools is very new. Ship of Fools isn't on Dix Picks 24, but you can hear it in the full show. So yeah, so they're like not only trying out their sound system, but also trying out some new material in front of fans for the first time. So a cool, interesting show to release. Uh, it's a very interesting show to release because, as we said, it's the debut of the Wall of Sound. And, you know, the Wall of Sound, for all its legend, also was legendarily unreliable. And this show reflects that, I think. <laughs> they're, they're still working out the kinks. And that also has a strange influence on the show, I think. You know, very obviously in the fact that there's like a false start. Uh, at the start of disc two, the start of set two is is kind of a funny moment to leave in on a live album. But just throughout the show, I feel like the mix is kind of all over the place as they're figuring out, you know, how to work this monstrosity <laughs> and how to how to get the balance just right. So, you know, very cool, very in the spirit of the Dix Pick series that they chose this as like a warts and all release to put out and show, you know, just how the Grateful Dead were always just on this edge of disaster uh, and the show completely falling apart. And that tension inspires some of the genius that we're used to from the Grateful Dead live. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so glad they left the false start in because, again, I think that adds to what I like about this uh dicks picks 24 that and again mm. some of the weird banter going on it, it just feels like not a proper grateful dead show in a lot of ways it feels almost like a rehearsal or again just hanging out with like a bunch of people and they're playing music and there's an informality to this show that i personally really like and i think it feeds into like what makes this like a charming listen uh for the most mm-hmm. part like the wall of sound i i rewatched the episode of Long Strange Trip, where they talk about the Wall of Sound. And again, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of rock documentaries. I've never seen a rock documentary where they talk about the PA for several <laughs> minutes. And, you know, I love the Wall of Sound, but like, there is something kind of spinal tapish about it too. You know, like, I think it's, right. I think it's like a work of genius. And in a way, we can't really appreciate it listening to these recordings because you can't really tell listening to this right i mean it doesn't yeah you mentioned like how there's some technical screw-ups you can tell that but it's not like this sounds like way better than any other grateful dead show it doesn't translate to us in the way it maybe right. did in the room like i love the part in long strange trip where phil is talking about the walls it seems like phil was the most enthusiastic about the wall of sound i mean absolutely it seems like jerry eventually got tired of it of just how much of a strain it was to haul this thing around but like there's this part where phil was like it was absolutely apocalyptic and he said you know it was like the voice of god you know (laughs) just like phil was like just loving this thing and like steve Parrish too talking about the wall of sound he's like we learned to weld you know (laughs) we built this ourselves and like and Steve Parrish is just awesome. He's like a basset hound, like as a person. Like if like, yeah. like, like like if you just had like a big dog, like a big friendly dog that was like a guy, it'd be like Steve Parrish. <laughs> that same episode too, he talks about like he goes on this riff about nitrous oxide. Like, do you remember that? Like he goes in this right, thing about yeah. how 
Like he did nitrous oxide to like, you know, explore consciousness and all that and like there's a clip of him just like laughing his ass off in a basement like a seedy looking basement like just huffing like with this woman and i'm like dude i don't know this seems just kind of like dirty to me but (laughs) the grateful dead crew were yeah dirty is the right word for it i think sketchy in a lot of ways but the wall of sound was i guess both the bane of their existence and their their child right because it it took Basically a full day to set up. Yeah. Which le- leads 74 to be a very sparse touring year because they can't play two shows in a row. They have to like go to a city and set it up and then play a show the next day and then break it down and then move to another city and set it up. So, yeah, not practical. Parrish makes it sound like they never slept. He's like, we got up at 6 a.m. Yeah. We'd have to be at the venue by 8. <laughs> We'd have everything yeah. up by like uh, noon. The band would sound check at 4. They'd play till 2 in the morning. We have to tear it down for three hours. And then right. we have to go to the next city at 6 a.m. the next day. Yeah, not healthy. No, exactly. That's why you're doing <laughs> nitrous all the time and other <laughs> kinds of stuff to keep going. And also shout out to uh, Kid Candelario who recorded this particular Dick's Picks, but was also on the stage crew and was also, you know, Bob's guitar tech and I think Keith's tech too at the same time. So wearing a lot of hats <laughs> and also had to turn out official vault mix of this show on the side. So uh, he was... He was a busy guy this day in 74. If you look on the inside, if you have the CD of, of Dick's Picks 24, they have a bunch of photos of the Wall of Sound. You can also just Google the Wall of Sound and see photos of it. But yeah, like in the movie, they talk about how Phil Lesh's amps were 32 feet high. <laughs> just insane. <laughs> yeah. and, in the, and I don't really understand this, but they said that it had to be 32 feet high because like the sound wave went that high. Yeah, or something. it was something to do with the amplitude of the sound waves. They were also trying to figure out how to project it, you know, deep into the crowd. It was like a mile. sacrificing volume or sound quality. Like, yeah. like Owsley's... And so that's why it's so vertical, I guess, is because by stacking it vertically instead of horizontally and spreading it out horizontally, they were able to project it farther. Yeah, like, I guess Owsley's dream was to project sound one mile out without any distortion. So, like, right. if you were a mile away, it would sound clear as as a bell, which, again, right. is insane. Like, why would you have to do that? But, why not? Hey. Yeah, why not? But, I mean, it's also where the wall of sound contrasts with this, you know, combined sound system they built for California Jam, right? Because I imagine that one didn't sound as good as the wall of sound. I'm just going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that that oh. one was just louder. And like, just getting louder is not going to make better sound. It's going to like be an overwhelming sensory experience for sure. But I think it's important to note that the wall of sound was designed for clarity of sound, not just volume of sound. And that's where like Phil's thing, not only was it a 32 foot high stack, but he had different amplifiers for each individual string of his band. So things like that, which are totally unique to the dead, that they would consider. We also want to give each instrument its own space in the mix. And that's where I do think you hear the influence of the wall of sound. Even when you listen to a soundboard, it's not so much a direct, like you're hearing what the wall of sound sounded like. But I do think it changed the way the band played in this era through 73 and 74. Because throughout 73, they were kind of like 
building the wall of sound. This is the official wall of sound that you see in pictures, but we talked about those Boston 73 shows. There's a great picture of them. It looks like they crammed the wall of sound into a little theater stage and it's just walled, like ceiling to floor speaker cabinets. So I think as they built this monstrosity, it also kind of influenced the band to spread themselves out and how they were playing. Uh, And you hear that a lot in this show, where as you say, there's a lot of space between the instruments. There's a lot of there's a sparse feeling to the show that I absolutely think is the result of, you know, this technological marvel built behind them. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a good point to make that, like, for all of this firepower that they had, which, again, I don't think we gave the the numbers here, 48 amplifiers, 641 speakers, 26,000 watts, 30 feet tall. I guess, again, Phil's apparently was like 32 feet I don't know if he had the highest <laughs> one. I, I like that probably. Phil Phil probably insisted on having the highest one. But it wasn't just to blow people's brains out. And you can hear that on this show because there's a, there's a lot of quiet moments on this show right. where uh, it would have come through with a tremendous amount of power even if they weren't playing super loud. So, yeah, I think that's a good point that you made. It, I'm, yeah, I'm sure it would have affected how they played on stage. We should talk a bit about the Cow Palace, which is one of the great venue names for, for from <laughs> 70s rock this is a venue this is again one of like the venues that bill graham used in in the 70s i guess it held about sixteen thousand people sixteen thousand five hundred people i know about the cow palace because there was a famous uh show by the who at the cow palace in 1973 i wonder how yep. long before this show that was but that's a famous who show because keith moon apparently took a bunch of horse tranquilizers before the gig. As one does. As one does. It was November 20th, 1973. So okay. Just five months beforehand. Yeah. Five months before this gig. And he passed out in the middle of the show, and they had to bring a fan out of the audience to play <laughs> with The Who. And you can go online, you can go on YouTube and see that uh, right now. Like you can hear like Pete Townsend asking for volunteers from the audience. Uh, and, uh, can anybody play the drums? Good. That sounds like a nightmare to me. That sounds like a dream you would have where the Who in 1973 needs you to play drums with them. <laughs> uh, you know, that just sounds And the guy does a pretty awful. good job though. Yeah. He, it, it's almost it almost seems like a ringer cuz he gets up there and he knows exactly what he's doing. Like that uh could have gone really poorly, especially given that it's Keith Moon. It's not just like you're not just keeping 4/4 time. You got to be Keith Moon up there. It works out pretty well for them. Keith Townsend has always complained about how Keith Moon didn't keep time. He was probably glad at that point <laughs> just to have a dude keeping a simple 4/4. I think they played Spoonful. I think that was the only okay. song they played with him. Like I think the guy yeah, later yeah. said that he was exhausted after playing that with like one right. song with the Who. Which I would be too. I <laughs> I'm mean, sure. Yeah, such a physical band. The adrenaline of uh, that moment. I mean, that's like a, that's a storybook moment, right? Oh, absolutely. And wasn't there minor league hockey also at the Cow Palace? Oh yeah, you know there was minor league hockey at a, at a Grateful Dead venue. A jam band rule right there. Minor league hockey. The Cow Palace, so named by the way, because it hosts the Grand National Rodeo Horse and Stock Show. Ah. Uh, so a newspaper headline in or a newspaper article in 1935 said, "Why when people are starving should money be spent on a palace for cows 
<laughs> talking about the uh, the livestock pavilion, and the headline writer turned the phrase into the cow palace. So I always thought of it as like the you know the home of the cow emperor. Uh, but I guess <laughs> exactly. cow palace works in that way too. Uh, yeah, that there was ho- hockey, of course, indoor soccer, basketball. There was I think the first arena where the Warriors played as i don't know if they were an nba team at the time or in one of the other leagues but the san francisco warriors played there currently it is the home of the san francisco shock who are the san francisco overwatch esports team (laughs) so i guess uh you know whoever's doing 36 from the vault for some other band 30 years from now when they talk about the history of the venues that that band played bts or somebody it'll they'll be they'll have a theory that bts played best in esports arenas <laughs> around the country instead of minor league hockey uh, that's uh, beautiful that that's where things have gone so we'll, we'll give that for free to the next generation of music podcasters so we should also mention that the dead played i guess they only played there twice they played there again in 1976 for a new year's eve show which was released as a live record in 2007. I believe I have that live record. It's a pretty good record. You know, 76 dead. They're coming. They're about to enter 77. So you can tell that they're warming up after the hiatus. It's it's funny that they only played the Cow Playlist twice, given that it was a Bill Graham venue. And I know a lot of other, you know, sort of Bill Graham people play there. I think Santana played there a lot and things like that. So I don't know what the deal was there. If the dead just felt more at home at Winterland and then they would play it out at the Oakland Coliseum Arena, which is probably similar size to the Cow Palace, I think. But uh well they did some things at the Warfield too around that time. I mean there's yeah. just like a lot of venues in San Francisco, I think. Um and then you've got Oakland. Again, jam band fans on the coast, you always get the hookup. <laughs> If you're on the Northeast or you're on the West Coast, you're going to see a lot of dead shows. Right. I mean, they had played Winterland just a month before this show. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like you uh, you had to take a whole four weeks off from seeing The Grateful Dead in San Francisco in, in 1974. It was real tough. So before we get to the show, let's set up the scene here in terms of just talking about what else was happening in pop culture uh, this week in 1974, I guess late March 74. The number one song in America, Dark Lady by Cher. I don't know this song. (laughs) I don't know either, yeah. It seems like another potentially problematic song from Cher (laughs) (laughs) in the 70s. Right. I assume it means dark and mysterious, not like dark-skinned. But uh, Yeah, she went racial back then. She, she She had the song Half Breed. That was in right. another, that must have been like for a 73 or 74 show. Right, and, yeah, uh, a couple episodes ago. People just wanted Cher to address the hot button issues 
in the she early was the 70s. closest thing to like a minority <laughs> in uh, in that particular corner of loungy pop, I guess. Oh man, uh, at the time, yeah. And then the rest of the charts had weird thematic doubles. I found we had both Seasons in the Sun and Sunshine on My Shoulders. Oh, both Boogie Down and Jungle Boogie. And then you have both Benny and the Jets and Jet. There you so, go. That's what people were into in '74: Sun, Boogie, Airplanes. Which, hey, God love them. I'm, I'm, I'm right with them there. Sunshine <laughs> on my shoulders. That's John Denver, right? That's right. John Denver was hot right then. He had the number two album in the country. John Denver's greatest hits. And uh, famously, Jerry Garcia ran into John Denver in an airport around this time. I forget if we've talked about this before on the show, but yeah. he found, uh, he saw John Denver in the airport. John Denver didn't have any entourage or anything. He just had his acoustic guitar in a case. And Jerry was like, where's your crew? Where's your semi-trucks? Like, how are you touring like this? And I guess he was doing a tour where he just played with symphony orchestras around the country. So basically, he just had to show up and tune up his guitar and play his songs with an orchestra behind him. But Jerry, I guess, was inspired by this meeting to start thinking about maybe paring down the Grateful Dead organization a little bit. It had kind of become this uh, unruly, massive operation with multiple stage crews to set up the wall of sound trucking around the country. And Jerry was like, maybe it's time to uh, scale back a bit. And that might have led to the hiatus and, and led to a little bit more of a streamlined operation when they came back in 76. So John Denver briefly broke up the Grateful Dead. Is the uh, is the moral of that story? And he killed the wall of sound. So thank yeah. you, John Denver, for that number one album in the country. The way we were, Barbara Streisand. Barbara, yeah. Babs, so, yeah. And uh, you mentioned John Denver's greatest hits that uh, was lurking around there. Court and Spark by Joni Mitchell, great record. Tubular, Tubular Bells. Bells. Mike Oldfield, still very 1974. He's still riding like the Exorcist wave there. Exactly. Yeah. What a strange, strange album to be a big hit. And uh, Planet Waves, Bob Dylan was big around this time. I think the tour '74 was ending right around this time in Los Angeles. Like they, mm-hmm. the shows that were recorded for Before the Flood were right around this time. So Bob and the band were in uh, Southern California, while the Grateful Dead were in Northern California. Maybe you could have road tripped and seen both. <laughs> around that time that would have been pretty incredible uh number one film in america blazing saddles people always cite that as the example of like an older film that could never be made today (laughs) true it seems like that it's it's a great movie but man it is just like very cancel cancelable from start to finish although Uh, i feel like at the time like mel brooks was it wasn't like he wasn't aware that like a racial slur was offensive i think there was because that movie kind of has like a progressive message to it, like yeah, underneath th- it. The whole movie is about racism, basically. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think Mel Brooks could make a movie like that right now, I guess. Though I, I did yeah. learn from looking at it. I never knew this, that Richard Pryor co-wrote it and was actually considered for the lead. That, uh, what's his name? Cleavon Little. Yeah. Actually. That so, would have been... I'm surprised he wasn't in it. That's so strange. I, know. It's, I don't think he was popular enough yet. Especially because it has Gene Wilder in it, too, and they made a bunch of movies together. Oh, that's right. Uh, well, he he was just on the cusp then of blowing up because, I, you know, I mean, by the late 70s, he was right the man. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like the Chappelle show of its time where, you know, even Dave Chappelle is kind of uh, 
uncomfortable with how he dealt with racial issues on his show and doesn't really want people to see it anymore it seems now uh like blazing saddles like was you know very funny but also did it in a way that could be easily misconstrued i think you can't really quote a lot of lines from that movie (laughs) without getting into a lot of trouble well we can't you and i (laughs) can't other people might be able to um another movie that came around this time that has sort of a grateful dead connection is john carpenter the great horror film director he put out right. his first film in 1974 called Dark Star, yeah, which is a really interesting movie. He he actually made it as a he started when he was a student. Um, mm-hmm. I believe he was at USC, like around the time that like everybody was at USC. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> George, George Lucas, George and Lucas, Coppola, Coppola yeah. yeah. Although he wasn't in with those guys, apparently he was no. like on his own. But it's this sci-fi comedy that was written by it was co-written by this guy daniel bannon who went on to write alien yeah and it's pretty similar concept to alien too. totally but it, <laughs> yeah it's just like a little bit wackier than alien yeah. and i don't know if it we should have looked this up i don't know if, if carpenter or bannon were deadheads and like yeah I've, I've looked it up before i don't think i think it was accidental i don't think they were intending to reference the dead with it it was just a coincidence but yeah kind of funny that there was a movie called dark star that had nothing to do with the grateful dead released during one of the grateful dead's heydays and it came out yeah five days after the show march 28th the number one show in america we'll do we'll do the top five number five hawaii 50 number four mash number three sanford and son number two the waltons number one all in the family so uh, yeah okay we knew that and all in the right. family of course as we said donna would watch that during playing in the band <laughs> before getting ready to do her big yelling part. So yeah, some of these 74 plans, you could fit a whole episode of all in the family <laughs> into the jam. I think not this one, but uh, yeah, some others later in the year. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. We have arrived 
at our show. We're at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, March 23rd, 1974. The Wall of Sound is ready to go for the most part, although not everything is plugged in, you know? <laughs> it seems like, like a cat was on stage and it kicked out the cord on something. We got 640 speakers to plug in, so yeah, you know, exactly. naturally a, f- a few of those aren't going to be working once the band starts. So uh, that's the case here. With the U.S. Blues opener, even on the soundboard, it sounds like half the band is playing and half the band is not, and things kind of float in and out of the mix for the entire song. And uh, yeah, it's great. It's just, you know, as ramshackle as you would expect from the Grateful Dead. But imagine I imagine walking into the venue and seeing this thing for the first time. Like, I always just marvel. You talked about how you can look up a bunch of pictures, and I actually had, like, a slideshow as my screensaver for a while. <laughs> just wall of sound photos. Such a beautiful thing. So to walk into the Cow Palace and see this thing, and then to hear it kind of lurch to life over the course of the first few songs here, that had to have been a pretty tremendous experience, I think, for a Grateful Dead fan. I wonder how it sounded in the room, you know? Because mm-hmm. maybe it just sounded super powerful, and they wouldn't have noticed... The little nuances that we pick up on listening to it at home i'd be curious about that you know i don't know if we talked about this last time u.s blues came up it was on dick's pick seven which dick's pick seven is in june of 74 which was just over a month before nixon resigned and i mean is yeah. it fair to assume that u.s blues was inspired by you know the watergate scandal i mean that was really starting to heat up by early 74 you know vietnam obviously is in the death throes i mean the the dead didn't really do a lot of like political songs like overtly political songs but right is it fair to assume that that was in the water for them and it would have been apropos to comment on it you know at this moment in time yeah i think they there was a lot of sincere patriotism and ironic patriotism in the air at the time because it's also kind of leading up to the bicentennial right and i don't know how much that was on people's radar in 1974 but you know it makes me think of like nashville the robert altman movie too being like just drenched in all this like patriotic imagery but clearly sort of an ironic fashion so i mean u.s blues is also interesting because it was played throughout 73 as wave that flag which the lyrics for that i mean they're worse i think and they're also just kind of like nonsense lyrics like they're just sort of like silly rhymes like catch the flu burn the stew (laughs) things like that it sounds very tossed off it's not robert hunter's finest hour i think whereas the u.s blues lyrics i think are actually pretty great and kind of have this like if you were barely listening you might think that it's like a pro-america song but it's really about sort of like the weird america that the grateful dead represent right right it's uh you know uncle sam hiding out in a rock and roll band like that's like a an iconic line for Jerry. And, you know, I like U.S. Blues. I think it is like, we've talked a lot about how Grateful Dead is both the best and the most American rock band. <laughs> and so it's it's perfect that they have a song like this that is just kind of like about the goodness and badness of America. I always think of the Grateful Dead movie, too, when I hear this mm-hmm. song. Because yeah. there's that extended the cartoon. Yeah, yeah, the U.S. Blues cartoon in that movie. The thing about this song, too, is that it is basically a Chuck Berry homage that they're Mm -hmm. musically speaking even lyrically because you know chuck berry has songs talking about america i mean promised land really is a song like that and speaking of promised land that's the next song on the disc so we're getting (laughs) so in a way we're getting like is this a double berry we're getting like a fake berry and a real berry at the start of the show i just feel like did bob feel like i gotta get my berry in jerry's got (laughs) his berry 
I'm going to get my berry. Because these, I mean, we talked about the edits that were made. I mean, I like Promised Land at the start of a dead show. You know, we've talked about this before. Like, in terms of berry, I think it's by far the best. But I don't know if we needed two. Mm-hmm. U.S. Blues and Promised Land. I don't know. But maybe the edit wouldn't have made sense. It would have sounded too choppy or something if they cut this out but i think for the show itself too it makes sense to do this kind of double opener because it gives everybody more time to work out the technical gremlins of the wall of sound people are just dancing they're not really paying attention they're just having a good time you can't like open with weather report suite which requires (laughs) all this like you know subtle sonic nuance that's a total rob Uh, mitchum quote by the way you can't start (laughs) with weather report suite that's that's true for rob in any context Right, right. Uh, so, you know, you, you start off with the easy stuff uh, and make sure everything's working. By the way, like, I noticed this in Promised Land and kind of throughout the first set, but does does Billy sound kind of off to you or a little bit strange uh, in this show? It might just be like sort of a hangover from him being one of the greatest drummers alive on our last volume. <laughs> but he sounds a little weird to me and a little bit off. Uh, and I, I can't tell if it's the mix or if it's Billy himself. I didn't get that at all. I love Billy okay. in this show. Again, there's like a real sparseness to this show. Like in a way, like you don't hear Phil all that much, at least in this first set. I don't know. There's just something like it doesn't sound quite as full, maybe, as you would expect. But yeah. at the same time, it kind of reminds me of Dick's Picks 1, which that was, I guess, what, like three months, about four months, I guess, before the show. Yeah. But it's only and like, only four shows before it. Or right. Three, there's only three shows separating Dick's Picks 1 in this show. So... They still have that airiness from 73 a little bit. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. quite have the the jazziness, uh, that kind of muscular jazziness that we associate, I think, with, with 74. But no, I, I, didn't, I didn't get that from Billy. I, I actually really like Billy on this, on this record. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like there's songs like where they're really kind of mellow and like he's keeping it exciting with what he's doing in the rhythm section sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like it did make me wonder... Go chase down the answer to a question I've always, I've often wondered about with the Wall of Sound, which is, was Billy nervous about the fact that there was this giant cylinder of speakers hanging over his head <laughs> throughout the entire performance, which is one of the most insane things I think about the Wall of Sound. Uh, apparently that cluster was the vocals, and that's like the part in the middle, right? So that's like a big cylinder of speakers just like plopped right in the middle hanging from like some very skinny looking wires uh (laughs) and the drum set is set up right underneath it but since i happen to be reading i'm still working my way through kreutzmann's autobiography i did find him talking about what this is like and he's he talks about the reno show which is actually this this next show in may where they take the wall of sound on the road for the first time uh and billy writes about that show saying Uh, which was an outdoor show. Uh, That afternoon in Reno, as I made the walk to the stage and saw this thing fully assembled, I had some concern about a safety issue. I was looking at this monumental edifice of speakers, this statute of hooliganism in the sound universe, and it was utter madness, just madness. The wall center cluster was designated specifically for vocals. We're talking about two tons of speakers suspended above the drums. As I walked to the stage that blustery day in Reno, the whole center section swayed significantly in the wind. 4,000 pounds of speakers directly above my head. They were hung from one single winch, (laughs) and if something went wrong or the speakers broke free, I would be as flat as a penny on a railroad track. 
It never stopped being disconcerting to look up and see all that weight above you, knowing that it was all assembled and disassembled on a daily basis, leaving much room for faults. So, yeah, I mean, this is like some classic, how are we going to give a little edge to the band? <laughs> like, let's actually put their lives in danger by suspending, you know, tons of speaker equipment above their very heads uh, while they're playing uh, just to keep them awake and <laughs> and on edge. And I wonder too, like, did Steve Parrish, was he huffing nitrous as they were assembling this? <laughs> well, that, that's the thing too. Was yeah. that after that? Like where, like, where in the sequence of the day was the <laughs> nitrous huffing taking place? Because... You know, if it was like, oh, I'm instead of a smoke break, I'm taking a nitrous break in this in the midst of putting this together. I would be like, okay, that might compound my anxiety if All I right. was Billy. Are you theorizing that Billy was nervous here and that, that affected his playing? That's that that's my theory here. Yeah, is that uh, he's a, a little uncomfortable and tentative at the start of this show. It might just again, it might just be the mix. He feels a little less uh, aggressive, a little less confident than. He did on Dick's Fix 23, for instance, in 72. I mean, maybe because of this thing hovering above his head. <laughs> I mean, I would say in general, this show has like a tour opening feel to me yeah. where, you know, they're kind of getting back and they're limbering up. They're getting back into uh, tour mode here because, you know, this is mm-hmm. a standalone show. There was a bit of a break there, I guess, in early 74. So I, I think generally speaking, bands are always like a little mellower, a little maybe a little more sluggish at the beginning. So that would make sense mm-hmm. to me. But I have to say, like, as we go into our next song, Brown-Eyed Women, this is a very mellow version of this song. And I actually yeah. quite liked it. I This is, again, like, this was one of the earlier Dick's picks for me. So this Brown-Eyed Women, for me, has always been a little dear to me. This is, like, one of the songs I really always liked on this first disc. And I, I really like this version. I like the how spare and lean it is. And another thing about this version that... And we're gonna hear this in other songs on this on this on this album. Like are Phil's backing vocals like more prominent than usual? I feel like we hear more <laughs> Phil. They on, are exceptionally loud, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this brown eyed woman is almost like a duet. <laughs> like he's like competing with Jerry for uh lead vocalist. Yeah. I mean well, it's just like we hear him almost we, as much as Donna, I feel like. Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. Donna is is ostensibly the backing singer, but like Phil right. is like Phil's still taking the high parts. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we great. we've brought this up before on the show, but that 1974 Phil, he is just at the peak of his existence, like the best time of his life. I think between having the wall of sound to play with, having a beautiful beard and long yeah. hair at this time, like yeah. Phil, it's the only period where Phil ever looked cool. Yeah, that <laughs> it was 73 and 74, and that awesome bass strap too that he had, and yeah, and the bass guitar that has like 50 different knobs on it for some reason. And, oh yeah, uh, you know he's they're about to go in and record from the Mars Hotel. He wrote two songs for from the Mars Hotel and sang two songs. Very unphil like to be. Uh, you know, stepping up to the plate on the songwriting end, too. Sea uh, Stones is going to come later in the year. His buddy Ned is oh, yeah. coming on the road with them, so he gets to do that. And Well, in the doc, he talks about how he didn't want to quit at the end of 74. Mm-hmm. Like, right. he played those so-called farewell shows in October. Uh, I think that was at the Fillmore. And he's like, I didn't uh, want... Winterland, yeah. At Winterland. And he didn't want to quit. Mm-hmm. You could see I think why. The balance of power, the balance of power in the dead is always shifting. And I think... 
by 74, it had really shifted to Phil. Like, I kind of feel like it's Phil's band in that year in a, in a, in a very strange way. That's partly why I probably like 74 so much, because I love Phil, and Phil is one of the more fascinating members of the band for me. So, yeah, it's clear to me that, like, when they decided to take a break and came back, Phil's role in the band was somewhat diminished after this point. So we're hearing Phil just, you know, loving life. <laughs> spreading, spreading his wings, man. Phil. Exactly. Just getting into it, being the man. The next song is Black Throated Wind and I've been really into this song lately. We've had we've had this on the last couple Dick's picks. So this song's been mm-hmm. on my mind. The other day I was in my backyard having some post-work drinks and I got a little buzz that I posted a joke <laughs> poll on our Twitter page <laughs> where I asked like what like, what is the city of blues, which is a reference right. to this song cuz St. Lou is the city of blues and I know you hate St. that lyric. Louis. So yeah. I wanted to do a shout out to you with that. And uh, I think I said St. Louis, Chicago, New Orleans, and I said wherever Rob Mitchum is. <laughs> and our listeners were responding very seriously with like what they thought was the actual city of blues, which I just thought like, man, I've created like Rob, Rob's nightmare <laughs> with this, where people are in our timeline just earnestly talking about the home of the blues. Yeah. So, so maybe that joke actually paid off better than I could have ever hoped for. <laughs> It was just uh, specifically harassing me. Yeah, I was actually <laughs> impressed how well uh, wherever Rob Mitchum is uh, performed in that poll. I was I was last place, but it wasn't. You know, I had at least ten percent of the votes. That's so. what I voted oh. for. I voted for that. Yeah, one. that's what I voted for too. Yeah. So I guess it's it's now canon. Yeah, I think what what ended up winning Chicago won. Yeah, Chicago won. But a lot of people were talking about like, what about Clarksdale? What about you know <laughs> any you know, a bunch Memphis. of Memphis? Memphis. Yeah. And I was like. Because I'm drunk in my backyard, and I'm trying to troll <laughs> my co-host here, okay? Like, I, yeah, come on, guys. Did you did you not get the joke that was an hour and a half into our <laughs> episode that came out, you know, two days ago? Well, we've, but we've, you know, Black-Throated Wind, we always talk about the city of blues. Yeah. That's like a, that, this is now officially a running bit. I guess now we are announcing that this is a running bit on our show. <laughs> talk about the right. city of blues, St. Louis. Um I, again, I like this song. I like the part at the end where Bob is getting the ham sandwich going, doing the going, going, going. You know, he does a bunch of goings. <laughs> right. You know? yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, I, it's only, uh, it's ramping up rapidly in its hamminess. Oh, sure, yeah. So. The, the, yeah, there's, yeah. There's, 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 the, the ham is several inches thick on the sandwich there. With every going, there's another inch. Mm-hmm. This is a song I feel like I should find boring, and I never do. I always like Black-Throated Wind. Right. Well, they, I like it, especially for this era of the dead, because I think that sort of mellow, jazzy, sparse sound fits it very well. One thing I noticed about all the songs they cut from this volume, a lot of them are Bob songs, and a lot of them are the ones that sort of break this mood, right? So Mexicali <laughs> was somewhere in here. Uh, the cowboy around songs. This time. Are all the cowboy fun, songs, yeah. pretty much. El Paso and, you know. Me and my it, uncle. Me and my uncle. So they kept in all the sort of dreamy, woozy so- Bob songs like this and Weather Report Suite. Which I prefer. Out. I prefer yeah. Bobby because we'll get to this. Black Throated Wind would be one of my favorite Bob songs. And we're gonna, there's some other personal favorites of mine from Bob mm-hmm. coming yep. up later. That's going to be exciting. Let's get to Scarlet Begonias here. Right. The debut. Wow. Historic. World debut. World premiere. You can tell. It sounds like it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which, it sounds like a demo. It does. Like they hadn't even recorded it in the studio yet. So uh, it's it's a cool chance to hear a very, very early version of it. I mean, Scarlet is one of those songs where Jerry, over time, built up 
a very iconic vocabulary of guitar licks, right? So it's not like he ever played the same solo the same way twice, but he has certain moves in Scarlet Begonias that you're just like, all right, yeah, you're going to hear it some variation on it every time you hear it in Scarlet Begonia's like the solo the jam part of it so it's really funny to hear this one because he's just he sounds like he's never played the song before in the solo like he's just like he knows the chords and he's trying some things out but it doesn't have any of that like lyrical melodic playing that would come from Scarlet down the road so interesting version for sure obvious thing that jumped out to me in addition to the things you just mentioned is that Donna's not on this song. I always feel like this is one of the more one of the more effective Donna songs from this era and you gotta say that that Bill however you feel he played in the first part of this disc he's on point mm-hmm. on here. I mean he, he he's playing yeah. the funky drummer on this track. I think he's really right. sustaining it as they're kind of figuring out how they're gonna play this song. I mean Bill seems the most on point on on this performance. Yeah that Dick's Pick 7 Scarlet really jumped out at me for how funky it was and how great it sounded with One Drummer Dead. But that part kind of went away too. Like it, it definitely lost its funkiness to become more of like a, I don't know, sort of a calypso feel, tropical feel uh, down the line. Yeah, very, very cool drumming and uh, some funny lyrical flubs. Jerry says there's nothing wrong with the way she combed my eye. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're still nailing down the words, uh, but yeah, it's a it's an interesting experiment here in a in a sound checky show. Now there's this this is the first part. This is the first instance of confusing banter on this disc. Is at the end of Scarlet Begonias, you can hear Phil. I'm I'm almost positive it's Phil. He says, "You know, I can't wear that with my glasses on." <laughs> so this is any number of things that he could be talking about there. I don't know right. exactly what he's referring to. I don't know if there's like a, a Grateful Seconds essay explaining uh, what exactly. <laughs> I You know, when I heard that, it made me think of that video of the dead. I think it's from somewhere in Europe and during the 72 yeah. tour where he's wearing the clown mask. 
<laughs> yeah, I love that. So I'm wondering, like, did someone give Phil another clown mask? Although I think he wears his glasses with the clown mask, so maybe he does. That would it, It's a hilarious photo that I will uh, post when and, this is up. And Phil, yeah, and like Phil is like loving it too. Like he loves the clown. <laughs> yeah. He's just laughing his ass off with the clown mask, which is great. Yeah, they all have. They all wear masks, and I think the rest of the band gets tired of it and takes it off after a couple minutes. And Phil has it on for like ten. <laughs> so it really appealed to Phil. Oh, that's great. I love it. It's a good look. It is. Next up, beat it on down the line. This is an interesting part of the set because a lot of things got cut from around here. This is mm-hmm. where it must have been the roses in El Paso. Were those before this song? After this. After Between this. Between Beat It On Down the Line and Deal. So very songy first set and kind of in a in a run of shorter songs. You know, Beat It On Down the Line, it, it, it's fine. They could have inserted any of those songs right here, and it would have worked. It must have been The Roses has pretty terrible Donna vocals, it must be said. And you know, we're an extremely pro-Donna podcast, and I also think this is a case of her not being able to hear herself, but it's got some pretty awful harmonies. <laughs> so I can see why that uh, did not make the cut, but not much to say about Beat It On Down the Line. They played seven beats, for those of you keeping track of how many beats they played at the start of the song. From there we go into Deal, which, you know, there's some instances on this album where songs are appearing in places where you don't quite expect them to appear. I guess I always expect mm-hmm. Deal to be at the end of disc one, not quite mm-hmm. where it is here. But this is another instance where there's some weird banter that we don't really understand. What the context <laughs> is, as Bob at the beginning says... You can sure tell the ones that won their tickets over the radio. I'm not sure what that means. It sounds like he's like uh, shaming some people who look like they don't belong at a Grateful Dead concert, right? Yeah. That's how I. That's how it tracked to me. Like some suits showed up. Oh not yeah, what they were in for some uh, squares. And... Some squares in the audience. Bob's calling them out. It's like exactly. You're not real fans. Which Bob? Come yeah. on, man. Maybe they're just uh, <laughs> rude. You know, they're just yeah. checking it out. You know, you gotta like be, go easy on the newbies. Yeah, exactly. Con- you know, convert them to the the scene, man. Yeah. Now, this show was billed as in, soci- in association with KFRC, which is a radio station I'm not familiar with in San Francisco. But uh, Bob, not cool, man. Yeah, and it turned out that that person was Ronald Reagan. And then <laughs> he s- decided to run for president because he was for a minute Reagan thought, hey, maybe I'll get into the dead, grow my hair out. You know, go back to being liberal the way I was when I was younger before I went total Joe McCarthy commie hunting. And then Bob called him out and then he just kind of like put his head down and walked out. Yeah. Pouting. It's like oh. ran, ran for governor of California. Bob Bob broke my heart. I think he was already governor yeah. of California in the 60s. In 74. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, maybe he was like, you know, like, hey, I'm I'm trying to mend my ways. But then he's like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to run for president. I'm going to fire the air traffic controllers. I'm going to go down the evil path. Next, we come to Cassidy. And this is the first dead Cassidy, as you said before. Yeah, right. So the entirety of the dead were on Ace playing it with Bob, but they never tried to play it live until this very night. Uh, I'm not even sure how many times they played it <laughs> for themselves before they debuted it on this night, because that's a pretty raggedy version. But that kind of suits the song, to be honest. I mean, I like those 80s versions that are very sort of smooth and brenty and a little yachty. This is more of like the... Uh, 70s country rock take on it yeah i i mean this is one of my favorite bob weir songs i would say this Mm -hmm. would be like a top five bob weir song for me and i actually i quite like this version i thought it was really pretty and like you said the roughness suits it i think there's a tenderness to this song a vulnerability Mm -hmm. that i like i mean we're i think and we've talked about this that 
the live version of this, I, it seems like it really came into blossom in the eighties, like you were saying, Bob and Brent singing it together, and and that's great. But I don't know. There's like a vulnerability to this version that I I was really digging, and I love the guitar playing on it. You know, I love mm-hmm. I love how the guitar sounds on this version. So. I liked how ragged it was here, and again, this is a song I always love to hear. So, mm-hmm. love to hear Cassidy. Glad this is here, and not 15 million cowboy songs. You know, like <laughs> get those out of here. Let's let the beauty, yeah. let's, let's let the beautiful Bob Weir songs shine. Now we go into China Writer, and we had this in our last episode, Dick's Picks 23, and we were both kind of eh on that version. I mean, it was good. I mean, it was really good. 72 yeah. China Writer, but. 73, 74 China writer. I mean, is this like the prime China writer period, would you say? I think so. I mean, it's it kind of has two primes. The one that's on Europe 72 is really amazing. Oh, that's iconic, too. of course. Yeah. Right. And then a lot of the sort of 69, 71s are just sort of classic psychedelic, early psychedelic dead. But yeah, if you really want to see how much The Grateful Dead can change in just a little over a year, right? I think it's about 18 months separating Dick's Picks 23 and Dick's Picks 24. It's just to listen to the China writer, these two successive volumes, and they sound totally different. I mean, it's a much slower tempo, of course, but it's also, it's got like a swing to it that the 72 version just doesn't have. That 72 one is still kind of in like the hard charging, very tight form of the of these of these songs. Whereas this one, it just has so much room to breathe. Uh, and between the two songs, they're in no hurry to get from China to Ryder. They've got the feeling groovy segment in there to kind of transition between the two songs, which I always love. I never get sick of that. It's it's a great, really good version. Whereas the last one was a little bit just run of the mill this one might not be as good as that dick's picks 12 one which is another 74 that we heard from june but it's a really good one Picks 12 one seems like the standard bearer, at least yeah. in the Dick's Pick series. You know, I'm sure there are other China writers that you could put up with that one, but yeah, that one is so great. Next, we go into Weather Report Suite, which is always a controversial <laughs> selection for us on 36 from the Vault because you and I disagree yeah. on this song. And I'm wondering, I, I forget, like, have we ever talked about how this is kind of like Grateful Dead's 
Pink Floyd song. I hadn't thought of it that way. Especially but... the, like the language yeah. part is very shine on you crazy diamond to me. Mm-hmm. And maybe I was thinking of that on this particular version because you have the roads going. Of course, you've got the Jerry slide. It just made me think of Pink Floyd. And I think that might be why I like that intro so much because I love Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. I love that spaciness, that dreaminess. Again, this is like one of my favorite Bob Weir songs. I really believe that. And the whole thing, not just the Let It Grow section. <laughs> I like the intro a lot. But you, are you, have you changed your mind on the intro yet? Or are you still kind of iffy on it? Well, I did like this one. And I think for me, Billy kind of saves it because I feel like he's being a little more active drumming through the prelude in part one than he was maybe on the Dick's Picks 1 version. I didn't go back and uh, A-B test it. But I found myself a little more engaged with that instrumental intro. Does Jerry play a little less slide too than normal? It seems like it comes in a little bit later than it has on some other versions. I mean, it seems the same. You know, I'd have to go back and listen. You mentioned Dick's Picks 12. I think that also had like a really great weather report suite on that Mm. one too, if I recall. Is that the one that they go from weather report suite to like Eyes of the World? I think that's, that's the one that has a really extremely long jam afterwards. Yeah, it kind of like turns a, it's evil. It's got like an, a bonus, like twenty minutes of improv at the end of Let It Grow. Yeah, yeah that's great. That's that's a great version. Yeah, that Dick's Picks twelve. Damn, that's one of the great Dick's Picks. Yeah, for yeah, sure. I like that one a lot. This one isn't quite up to that standard, but still pretty good. I mean, yeah. the the thing that I liked about Weather Report Suite here is we kind of talked about this before with the Wall of Sound, but you know, a lot of bands would be tempted with their big giant sound system to just play louder and try and blow people away with the strength of these speakers behind them. Whereas Weather Report Suite is kind of like the beginning of it. It's like barely audible. <laughs> like you have to really, you know, lean into your speakers to hear what they're doing there. I appreciate that that they tried to use this thing, take advantage of the sound clarity aspects of the wall of sound, not just the amplitude of it the volume of it it's it's cool to hear them tinkering with these more subtle arrangements in this you know new live setting for them now we go over the disc two for all you cd listeners out there if you're just listening to it on a streaming device you just hit your little arrow to go (laughs) to playing in the band and uh, we talked about this at the top of the show but this is i think one of the more famous moments from this dick's picks where there's a false start at the start it sounds like bob's mic isn't turned on (laughs) and you you had an interesting note in our outline i'd like to hear you elaborate on this you threw out the idea that this might have been a staged thing that they like deliberately did this like oh so not the false start uh i was referring to the this next sequence of songs here uh oh okay i thought you were saying that they that they were kind of doing like a little like haha like (laughs) Our wall of sound doesn't work, so we're intentionally doing, you know, we're yeah. turning our microphone off. That would be kind of a funny thing if they did that. It would be. I, that, I, would, 
I can't. I don't. I don't think the dead would go for that. No, they, they, probably not. They mess up enough themselves to uh, need to introduce <laughs> fake screw ups. Um, yeah, it's funny because I listened to this on the odd too, just to hear what it sounded like from the crowd's perspective. Because you can still hear Bobby start to sing right on the Dick's picks, but it's kind of faint. Uh, so I wondered if it was just on the soundboard, but not projected out into the room. You can actually hear him on the audience tape too. So it, it sounds like one of his speakers, vocal speakers, is turned on, but not all of them, or something. Well, like I wonder that, how close that person was in the audience. That's true. Maybe they could have been very close. You could, yeah, maybe like the first ten rows or whatever could hear him, but not any deeper than that. I, I, I mean, I doubt people in the back could have heard him. <laughs> yeah. like that but it's kind of a funny moment because like you hear how the rest of the band responds to that and like half the band decides like we're just gonna keep playing and they'll figure it out and then half the band kind of drops out and eventually it all just falls apart i mean i love that they kept this in like they easily could have just cut straight to the the proper version of playing in the band but i think by this point the dick's pick series and the grateful dead organization is self-aware enough to know that this is part of the grateful dead experience to hear them the the disaster moments as well as the professional moments and really it's like one of the only times that us as listeners so far after the fact are reminded that the wall of sound is there because again yeah. we don't really we can't really tell that the wall of sound is going on you know until it screws up then we're like, oh, yeah, this is like the first Wall of Sound show. They don't have it totally <laughs> right. nailed down yet. So in a way, it's sort of like, well, it's like tipping the cap to the audience. Like, oh, remember, this is the first Wall of Sound show. It's like you're, right. you're hearing history here. And this screw up is reminding you of that. I wonder if that like affected the performance of this first part of playing in the band at all. Because mm-hmm. they don't really, you could say that half this disc is playing in the band because all yeah. these songs are sandwiched inside playing in the band. But like the, they kind of leave the first part of playing in the band like relatively quickly. I guess mm-hmm. they played for like what, like nine, ten minutes? It's and the, fourteen minutes, I think. Okay. Well, I guess if you cut out all the like hijinks at the start, it, yeah, it's probably closer to ten. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, like the false start that takes up about two or three minutes, and then mm-hmm. the, the proper performance. I, I wonder if that affected them at all they were like oh okay well <laughs> let's try this again right but, i mean it's a great performance i, I mean i would say it, but it, i feel like it kind of picks up steam as they go right. along trying to make up for that yeah yeah it's uh yeah it's a cool plan like we have heard much longer playing in the bands you know in recent episodes and throughout the series this one gets sort of sort of short-circuited uh, or sidetracked because it segues into Uncle John's band, which is something that they, they paired these songs together a lot, like, and they would continue pairing them, I think, all the way up through the 90s. But this suite is really, really cool because it's kind of like a palindrome. Like, it goes playing in the band and Uncle John's band and a Morning Dew, then back into Uncle John's band and then back into playing in the band. So I really like how they, like, sort of bookended the songs here. And I really wanted it to be, like pure creative inspiration for them to do it this way but then i like made the mistake of looking it up and sure enough they'd done exactly that sequence of five songs twice in november 1973 so i think it was something that they had sketched out and said hey wouldn't it be cool if we did this but i listened to all three versions of this song suite and this is by far the best one i think and the most polished the the segues between each successive song sound very sort of worked out and rehearsed in a way that the other two don't. They're a little rougher around the edges. And so it, I guess a personal preference, whether you like the smoother 
transitions between songs or you prefer the more sort of spontaneous sounding ones from Light 73? When you were just talking just now, I Googled quick to find out like when the longest playing in the band was because I knew the 46 minute playing in the band was right. sometime in 74 and it was May 21st, 74. Mm-hmm. So it's just like two months after this. So, you right. know, within two months, they were pushing this song to the farthest extreme that they would ever go. You know, if we're, if we're concerned that they weren't adventurous enough by repeating the sequence, it's like, well, they're getting warmed up. But at some point, they're going to go like way over the top with playing mm-hmm. in the band very soon after this show. But I talked about this earlier that an interesting thing about this show is that they're playing some songs in places that you don't quite expect them to be. And yeah. normally, when we hear Uncle John's band, it's at the end of a Dick's Picks. And usually at that point, we're like, oh, Uncle John's band, what a good song. And we don't really have much to say about it because they're not really jamming (laughs) it out. So this is an example of them actually taking that song out of the end of show slot and putting it in the middle of basically the jam vehicle for Mm -hmm. their show. And they jam it out. I mean, they kind of go into Uncle John's band, but it it, it always feels like they're still kind of playing playing in the band at the same time. It's almost like, like a shout out to Uncle John's band that then goes back to playing in the band. I mean, didn't it feel that way to you? Like, that's how I felt when I was listening to it. Yeah, absolutely. Both this jam, the first time they are in Uncle John's band, and then when they return to it after Morning Dew, it's hard to tell whether it's an Uncle John's band or a playing in the band jam, right? It sounds like a little bit like both, which is really cool. Yeah, like, I a like really that. really cool hybrid of those two songs. I Like, I prefer it, this, like, suite of songs to the 46-minute long playing in the band, I think, which we've we've talked about before as it being, like, just too much. <laughs> Can <laughs> too I much say of a good thing. that this is almost more of something that, like, Fish would do than the dead? Yeah. I mean, this seems mm-hmm. like more of a Fish thing where yeah. you're putting songs inside of songs, you're playing one song, but then you're kind of playing the music of a of a different song to another song. Right. That kind of thing. This was even like, some, like a remix. Yeah. Like the disco biscuits did even more, I <laughs> oh, think. Man. Just to go deep into jam band lore is that they would split up their songs or play songs backwards or all these things. So, you know, the dead are innovating this, you know, for better or worse. It's like the thing that everybody blames Star Wars for ruining Hollywood <laughs> unintentionally. The Grateful Dead by playing this sort of clever mega mix of five songs. Down the timeline you get to bands like just Jam bands doing really goofy shit with their set lists, but I mean, I, mean, I love it. I'm imagining yeah. the angry email being written right now <laughs> over your Disco Biscuits <laughs> reference. I can't yeah. wait to read that email. Oh man, that's going to be a beautiful thing. I mean, <laughs> returning to the subject of songs being in different spots in a set list or a surprising spot, we've yeah. talked in previous episodes about Morning Dew. And how we have mixed feelings when Morning Dew, say, is at the top of a set list, as opposed to toward the end where it has that emotional payoff. Mm-hmm. Here we have Morning Dew in the middle of this mega mix of songs. Do you feel like it comes across as well as this song can in this slot? Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, I think it's playing in the band, especially in this era with the really fusiony experimental jamming feels so like cerebral i guess and like the 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 structure of this is like breaking down that sort of intellectual sort of cold jamming to like warmer and warmer material i feel like you have playing in the band and you get like a a a few minutes of like that very out playing in the band jamming style that our, our friend grady talked about where they lose the time signature and go off in different directions uh but then it like brings it back into uncle john's band which is a you know one of the 
folkier songs from the Grateful Dead catalog. And then it even warms up further to Morning Dew, which is one of the more like emotional heartstring pulling songs that they played. So I, I, I like how it has this emotional structure to it where it reaches this crescendo of Morning Dew before sinking back, you know, progressively into more weirder and darker music afterwards. So rather than it being sort of the emotional climax of the show, it's like an emotional, it's like the eye of the hurricane here amidst a lot of really intense and almost free improvisation the thing i'd say about morning dew for me is that and i made this comment about the first disc you can hear phil's vocals a lot on the first disc but i feel like his yeah. bass isn't quite coming through as strong mm-hmm. which i think explains a lot of this like the, the the spareness of the music on that disc but like you start to really feel phil's presence i think on the second <laughs> disc yeah and, and he's really asserting himself again like this he's a pig and slop man with this wall of sound <laughs> he's the mad scientist you know they've got this incredible thing at their at, at their fingertips you know i think about that there, i saw a phil interview once where he was talking about stockhausen and he was talking about how uh, i forget the exact quote but he wanted something he wanted effect in the studio called dirty air i think it's called dirty air and i feel like there's, okay. some, there's some dirty air in this morning do and yeah, I think Phil just was really digging that at the time. Yeah, this Phil unleashed moment <laughs> in the middle of Morning Dew, where he drops some huge bombs and like turns on the full like power of the wall of sound behind him. Uh, it's one of the moments I went to in the audience tape. I didn't listen to the entire show on the audience recording, but I wanted to hear the crowd's response to this, and it's pretty good. It's not as like overwhelming as I thought it would be. Like I, I imagine people like scanners head exploding <laughs> when he starts <laughs> dropping some of these deep notes. People, people cheer. People are like, "Wow, yeah, loud fill," but it's not like uh, you know people aren't speaking in tongues and frothing at the mouth, which is kind of what I wanted. But it's still, it sounds amazing in both soundboards and audience just like Phil is showing off his new toy and having, having the time of his life. So as you said before, there's a palindrome-like structure to this sequence because we go from Morning Dew back into Uncle John's Band, 
back into Beautiful, playing. And a, and, a, and a really cool segue from Morning Dew and Uncle John's band. Uh, my friend Andrew, my dead friend I talk about a lot, uh, pointed out that they, they take the last chord of Morning Dew and turn it into the first chord of that Uncle John's band closing segment. So it's just perfectly seamless. It's one of those like rare moments where the dead did something, you know, very polished. <laughs> kind of like that, the help on the way intro on One from the Vault, where every so often they just got it right. And they don't get it right at all in the 73 versions I listen to, but here they just like nail it. One second it's due, the next second it's Uncle John's band. There's no confusion at all. Perfect segue. And from the Uncle John's band reprise, it's they go back into this jam, which is they label it as all Uncle John's band on the dicks picks but you could easily call it a play and jam all over again for the last sort of four minutes of that track before they do the official play and reprise so good stuff good stuff guys yeah it was a great idea it's an interesting thing to consider because with the dead you know you don't get those kind of segues if you haven't already attempted the same thing before on stage i mean that's something right. that you probably have to practice to figure it out in this respect that totally paid off that they did this sequence before but then again as dead fans you love the idea that they aren't repeating themselves on stage so uh, you know i'm of two minds on that and sometimes it's like well it's kind of cool that they had these stock things that they Mm -hmm. could draw on because it does make the show go to another level like when they really pull it off but you also want to be unpredictable so you know it's a balancing act i guess with this band and what you want from them. But yeah, this sequence is really cool. I always, I mean, and again, we've talked about this in other Dick's Picks. There's other instances on other albums that we've talked about where they basically make the second disc or the third disc one long plan. Because haven't we had instances like where the plan was at the beginning and the plan was at the end and like the whole thing was inside the world of plan? Haven't we right, had that? The whole set lines up with that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is like a little mini version of that, yeah. Right. But it's definitely like the most adventurous chunk of music on the set. You know, it's like a jamming light volume, to be honest, especially coming off of 23 where we had, you know, 45 minute, the other one to dig into. This one, you know, pretty much just has these two segments of playing slash Uncle John's band where they're really going off into the improv. Uh, but it's a it's a great half hour segment of music and aside from the wall of sound history angle of this volume it feels like the reason to release this show as part of dick's picks is it fair to say that the rest of this disc feels a little anticlimactic once we come out yeah. and i mean i th- there's parts that i like after this we should mention that on the unedited show they go out of plane into ship of fools right and there's this thing in for the rest of the set where they basically alternate between ballads and fast song in very Grateful Dead like fashion whereas <laughs> on the Dick's Picks it's basically just crowd pleasing upbeat songs well for the most part because we have a we have a we have one big ballad coming up but uh, yeah they, they got rid of Ship of Fools which as you said before that was like one of the first Ship of Fools yeah yeah and they were about to record it it's kind of a curious choice why they didn't put that on because the version is actually i think pretty good yeah i liked it and i like it as like a cool down after this you know extremely complex (laughs) suite of music that they played as sort of like a mid-set ballad i probably would have taken ship of fools over big river which is what did make it onto the disc but it's a very good big river too so you're a winner either way it's just in terms of like the flow of the sets i think ship of fools maybe works a little better here yeah i mean 
I'm on record as always enjoying Big River. I enjoyed this version. I will say the thing I would say in defense of Big River is that as awesome as that sequence is, the playing in the band sequence, it's still like pretty mellow for the most part. Mm-hmm. And like Big River is like maybe the most upbeat song on this album Mm. unless i'm forgetting something i mean it is among the most upbeat it's probably the most upbeat song on this disc anyway yeah so it is you know you were talking about a cool down from that sequence in a way i i almost don't think you need a cool down because it was already pretty mellow you know before that we had weather report suite you know on the first disc we've been pretty dreamy for a while so it feels nice (laughs) to get some 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 chugle. Bob gets one cowboy song to make the cut, so maybe they're trying to appease Bob on the cowboy song front. You gotta be be accurate to the historical record and include at least one cowboy song. Yeah, you're right. I mean, maybe instead of a cool down, you need a mid set cup of coffee here. <laughs> right. Let's let's shake it off. But because after right. after this, they on the actual show they play Ramble on Rose into Me and My Uncle. Those both got cut. I'm fine mm-hmm. with cutting both of those songs personally, although they're good on the on the show if you listen to the live archive uh unedited version but then we go into bertha and we love bertha but this is like another example of a song popping up in a part of the set that you would not expect bertha is like right. a set opener mm-hmm. not kind of like in the middle of a second set type song so that's it, kind of surprising that it's here yeah and it's like sort of opening a you could think of it as maybe opening like a third set crowd-pleasing <laughs> Grateful Dead songs <laughs> for the rest of this show. But yeah, I like it. And it's another one that sounds so different uh, in 74, I think, because 71, 72, it's a very up, up-tempo song that works well as a, as, a, as a show opener to get people up and dancing. This one's, you know, pretty chill. Again, getting back into this mellow 74 mood. You pointed out that like you preferred hearing it to sort of your typical late second set. Yeah. Vehicle, yeah. Like I mean, a, like a not fade away, which. Right. I mean, the show, I feel like, could use another jam sequence. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just so songy. And, you know, Bertha is one of these things just to drop on fish lingo again, like the fourth quarter uh, of a show can either be, you know, deeper into jamming or just sort of like crowd friendly songs. And I think they sort of took the latter path here, even if we're not hearing it all on the dicks picks. I mean, I'm never going to complain about Bertha and it's, it's a nice one. Yeah. I mean, and look, I like, I'm not, not going to not fade away. I'm just saying, I guess I was trying to think of a good reason to hear Bertha right here. Yeah. And I was making the case for it being a, it's kind of a fun novelty to hear it here as opposed Mm -hmm. to like a not fade away. Like you're used to hearing not fade away here. Uh, you yep. don't really want to hear. You don't normally hear Bertha here. Personally, I would have loved to have gotten an Eyes of the World right about now. I think that would have been awesome. You know, another mm-hmm. song that they could have stretched out and, and jammed out. You know, something like that. Because you're right, there isn't like. The, I mean, they're not going to do Dark Star. I mean, were they doing the other one a lot at this time in '74? Yeah, I think you got some other ones in there. Let's look on the bright side. They did cut around and round. So that that's great. <laughs> Kick that to the curb, and then we go into Warfrat. And, look, I love Warfrat, but this is the kind of song that you expect to hear coming out of a jammy song. Right, yeah. So I feel like it's not quite as effective. You know, I always love hearing this song or Stella Blue after, like, a great, you know, if we're talking late 70s going into the 80s, like, after Drums in Space. 
Mm -hmm. And then you hear like one of these beautiful Jerry ballads. Or at this time, if they would have done the other one or or like a, or like a jammy or Eyes of the World or something and then gone into Warfrat. So that would be like my one complaint. But like, I mean, it's a beautiful version. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and Jerry, of course, sings it beautifully. And the guitar solo is always, you know, he always knocks it out of the park, especially right. during this era. So you're saying that around and around into Warfrat doesn't give you that <laughs> emotional hit that you want from a <laughs> well, like, I gotta second say, set? Like on the uh, live archive, I didn't listen to Around and Round. Is that is that is that like a twenty five minute Around and Round? Maybe they maybe the one they, we've been chasing. Yeah, yeah they, they just jammed it. Maybe they didn't put it on because it was too long. Uh, <laughs> it was too good. It was too good. They, they they had to cut it. I don't know. I, I'm guessing that's not true. But <laughs> yeah, Around and Around into Warfrat. I don't know about that. I don't think that's that would, that's would... a bit of a whiplash. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's 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 a great Warfrat. One thing I haven't mentioned is that it, it feels like Jerry is doing some playing more of like chord solos than note solos through a lot of this show, and he, I really noticed it here in Warfrat where it's almost like finger picked, like he's playing chords and then little runs over those chords uh, rather than your typical sort of soulful paragraph length <laughs> guitar solo that you will get from later versions of Warfrat. I, I liked it. I thought it was a cool different take on it it's he he also kind of used that approach in morning dew i thought Playing a little bit more rhythm solo than uh, lead guitar solo, but it's it's a cool a cool different take. I don't know if that's something that he did a lot in '74, if this was just something he was tinkering with on this very loose show, but you know something I noticed. And then of course we end up with Sugar Magnolia, and you got the Sunshine Daydream Coda on mm-hmm. here, and uh, you know great rousing closing you know to the show. This is a, this is like one of the great Grateful Dead closers. And again, you know, we didn't have to wade through Barry here in in the second set, so that's great. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I think this hits pretty well. And also, we mentioned earlier that they cut the encore. Right. So we don't hear Casey Jones, and we don't hear One More Saturday Night. And I have to say that, you know, yeah, Sugar Magnolia, I think, is fine as a closing. You don't really need those other two songs, at least not on the proper Dick's Picks. Yeah, I would have maybe liked... Since they've ended so many Dick's Picks with Sugar Magnolia, which never really changes that much... I would have liked if they had included the Casey Jones here because it's another one like the Tennessee Jed that is like unusually slow and sparse for that song. I mean, it sounds almost like the handful of 90s Casey Jones when they brought it back because it's just so slow. It's almost like a dirge of a Casey <laughs> Jones. It is not high on cocaine at all. It is the opposite. <laughs> um, so it's the morning after version. I don't know if I like it. But I do think it's a very interesting version that maybe would have been a little bit of a more unique way to close off this volume. Getting a little tired of Sugar Magnolia, though I was laughing this time at the fact that while 
you know, Bob is singing Robert Hunter lyrics describing this dream girl of Sugar Magnolia that there's one line that compares her to a Jeep. Yes. <laughs> Can jump like a Jeep in four-wheel drive, jump like, jump like a Willys, I guess, which is a kind of Jeep I had to look up. Uh, it's but, pretty yeah, sexy, so, man. I yeah, love, exactly. I, I love women who are like Jeeps. I, that, that's definitely <laughs> exactly. my type. Built like a Jeep. Well, I mean, are we, I mean, you know, we do have the bathroom break option on the table. Are we going to bathroom break Sugar Magnolia, get out to the car? Ooh. Yeah, it's tough with tough with these ones where they cut songs out that we don't like because that that really makes us hold it, doesn't it? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, you feel like they've uh, they've displayed so much goodwill by cutting out <laughs> a lot of the, uh, the the chaff from this show. So yeah, maybe we don't bathroom break it. You know, again, yeah. Sugar Magnolia. It's boring for us to talk about, but like if you hear it, it's always mm-hmm. hitting the spot. So yeah, it's just us as members of the Grateful Dead industrial complex for. <laughs> podcasts we don't have anything interesting to say about sugar magnolia but that doesn't mean anything bad about the song um so that does it for dicks picks 24 looking ahead now to dicks picks 25 a four disker yeah here we go a lot of music two shows chunk of music two shows from 78 may 10th and 11th yeah new haven and springfield yeah and this is famously the show with like the one-off cover art that looks like a liquor bottle of dick holding up a a real to real disc like he's uh presenting simba to the african prairie can can i say (laughs) can i say that i love the spirit of this cover yes i'm not so sure about the execution i don't know (laughs) we can talk about this next week i or or, in our next episode because i love having dick on the cover but yeah the whole the, the all red thing with him holding up the things i don't know about it we'll find out i'll stare at this cover for the next few weeks and i'll make a a final ruling in our next episode about how I feel about this cover. Uh, But that about does it for this episode of 36 from the vault. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with more Dick's picks in our next episode. (laughs) 36 from the vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden and Rob Mitchum and produced by Osiris media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. radio stations in america profiles the wrath of the buzzard proh files subscribe now wherever you get podcasts hey this is dewey halpas host of peer pleasure on the sound talent media podcast network join me each week as i explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians actors comedians or creatives from chino moreno of the deftones john gorley of portugal the man to fat mike from no effects and ian mckay from fugazi and minor threat We go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.